Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. (laughs) Um, I choose this film because it was literally the first film I thought of when you asked me to think of a film because it is sort of the germinal visual text of my childhood. Um, When I've watched it probably certainly more than any other film ever produced. Um, do you want the backstory? Yes, please. <laughs> yes, absolutely want okay, the backstory. Okay, so... <laughs> Welcome to Open Form. I'm Michael Denzel Smith. 16-year-old Sarah Williams would love to spend all of her time with her own imagination. But tonight she has to babysit her baby brother Toby while her father and stepmother go out for date night. In a moment of rage, she wishes Toby away and into the hands of goblins. Now Sarah must make her way through a complex maze with mythical creatures and death traps at every turn to wrest her brother away from Jared, the king of goblins. This week's film is Labyrinth, and it was chosen by Melissa Phoebos, author of the acclaimed memoir Whip Smart and the essay collections Abandon Me and Girlhood. So uh, I was raised by a super Buddhist, queer, feminist, psychotherapist, and a Puerto Rican sea captain, and they were sort of like late boomers um and I was raised vegetarian Mm. and uh with a lot of sort of um pretty unconventional structures and we didn't really have tv we had actually I sort of can't believe this now but we had a little black and white tv when I was a kid that was born in 1980 so that was weird super weird even then uh with like a little dial that you turned and we didn't get any stations um and so I I really sort of didn't have tv and was kind of alienated from pop Mm. culture until like my adolescence um but when I was about nine, eight or nine, uh, my whole family went for a voyage on my dad's ship. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, crossed the Atlantic on his um, cargo ship. And because that's a really boring thing for little kids to do, uh, <laughs> my mom asked our neighbors who had this like really big VHS collection okay. to copy us some movies randomly to okay. bring with us on the ship. And so they copied five movies for us. Um, and those movies were E.T., Labyrinth, The Sound of Music, which actually had to be on two VHS tapes because it's so <laughs> fucking long. Um, uh 
an anime version of Swan Lake, which oh. anime wasn't a word. It was like a Japanimation yeah, yeah. Uh, version of Swan Lake. And maybe that's it. That's it. There were four movies on five VHS tapes. Nice. And those movies basically became like our TV yeah. for many years after that. We watched them on the voyage crossing the ocean. And then we just watched them over and over and over and over and over again. And Labyrinth was by far the most popular of those. So my brother and I would watch it like it was a TV station. Like we wow. would just turn it on at any point. We could probably recite from any scene in the movie, like any sort of key pivotal moment. So it has insinuated its way into my consciousness um the way that you know biblical stories did for people who had religion growing up which i didn't um or tv shows right so it's it's really fundamental (laughs) so i mean in that you just you mentioned you know a couple of like big time classic films that people go into (laughs) but i'm curious in particular just because of the sort of era that like labyrinth also fits into why labyrinth over et I know. I mean, this is a question I can't <laughs> quite. I mean, I I suspect that it was my doing because mm. I am the older sibling by almost four years. So I was like sort of the boss yeah, <laughs> or yeah. the bossy, um, at least in that situation. And I think that I powerfully identified with Labyrinth more. So we loved mm. E.T. I would say it was like labyrinth et the sound of music and swan lake i actually loved swan lake but the it was it's such a sad story that Mm. it makes me feel depressed even if i hear the score like piping from the department store it makes me feel sad and in my heart um but labyrinth i think you know i was sort of thinking about it a little bit as uh before signing on today um, and, and being like, why was it Labyrinth? Um, but it's obviously a story about a hyper dramatic and selfish big sister who is sort of humbled <laughs> by her own character. Um, and so I think it, it provided a really useful kind of, um, allegory for me for many, many years afterward. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I relate to that in terms of watching this, and I hadn't I'd never seen it until uh, you. I'm uh, so sorry. Like, no, no, no. I'm glad to have seen it. I was I was like, you know, uh, one my my biggest takeaway watching it was just being like, this feels just like Jim Henson and David Bowie fever dream acid trip <laughs> like you know just the two of their worlds and minds combining into something that really just it like... really did I mean it's a product of its time too right it was like yeah. Jim Henson like I grew up on Sesame Street and when yeah. we encountered this movie like I wasn't very far away from Sesame Street but I was sort of like approaching the bend toward adolescence yeah. and so I think I had this sort of partially nascent awareness of aspects of my personality and experience that were about to emerge. Mm. And this movie really spoke to them. Like, you know, I rewatched it for the first time in a a while recently because my wife had never seen it before. (laughs) Like this makes no sense. (laughs) Um, But it's like David Bowie is such a, like, it's very queer, you know Mm. what I mean? And I think Mm. I already certainly had a sense of my own queerness and there was a weird, I had a weird, I just felt enraptured by his character who was like 
very gender non-conforming mm-hmm. and alluring and sad and powerful. And um, there was something about that that I found really irresistible um, in, in a similar way that I think the character does too, right? And And I think it was like a kind of hero's journey that featured a like gender non-conforming character, a teenage girl and a mm. bunch of like trolls, <laughs> and, <you know>? <laughs> and a baby. And, um, and that was so, I don't know, in the eighties, it was like, there was She-Ra and then there were Barbies mm. and then there were like boy stories and all yeah. my other favorite movies were about boys. Yeah. And this movie was like the hero's journey for this like super femme girl. Yeah, I, it's it you know, and reading about it and looking up sort of the influences therein, it's it so much of it is talking about like you know the fairy tales that it's drawing on and sort of like mm-hmm. uh, Wizard of Oz and Snow White and all of this stuff. And but what you're saying is essentially they took those stories that feel like yes, they center like women girl characters but like this was a hero's journey as opposed to sort of a damsel in distress like right. i need to find mm-hmm. like you know what i mean like and, mm-hmm. and i think that yeah you're you're absolutely right in sort of like taking that story um that story uh archetype and essentially and saying okay well what if we allow her the the ability to uh, you know, go through exactly what a boy character would have in terms, but like, I don't think that it, what it doesn't allow is sort of like those feats of physical strength. It is more right. a, a imagination and her intelligence that lead her through this. Yeah, absolutely. Like she doesn't have to, um, like she doesn't have to pretend to be a boy or mm-hmm. um, assume any kind of drag. Like she sort of starts off as this like whimsical, self-absorbed, emotional, imaginative, intelligent girl. And that is who she remains. Right. (laughs) And of course there's like a reckoning uh, and some messages in there about like community and Mm. reliance on fellows. And, um, and she is humbled in certain ways, but she gets to remain this, this kind of character and also be a hero. And in that way, I do think it's a little bit radical. Right. You're him, aren't you? You're the Goblin King. I want my brother back, please, if it's all the same. What's said is said. But I didn't mean it. Oh, you didn't. Please, where is he? You know very well where he is. Please bring him back, please. Sarah, go back to your room. Play with your toys and your costumes. Forget about the baby. I've brought you a gift. What is it? It's a crystal. Nothing more. But if you turn it this way, look into it. It'll show you your dreams. I, I was saying earlier, I I got into it at, at least because uh, it, was ver- it was relatable in terms of like what what takes the story into the world of the labyrinth and, you know, her encountering all of these characters and the goblins and, and Mm Jareth, the goblin King. And when I, it's, you know, she is, uh, her parents, uh, 
father and stepmother are going out on a date night. Basically, they're leaving her to babysit and she's frustrated. She's a 16 year old girl that does live a lot inside of her head and just sort of like wants to be able to to do her thing like her and her stepmother is like I don't it doesn't understand her it like essentially says you know I would love if you had your own life she, she doesn't understand what her life is at that point uh mm-hmm. but she's left with the, the the baby and she's like I want you to go away like I just don't want this responsibility right now and she says the magic words that would turn uh, little Toby into a goblin <laughs> and suddenly he's gone and this is the I think the fear of every firstborn <laughs> is that like you will at some point lose your younger sibling and we have to Mm -hmm. be held responsible Mm -hmm. for that and i think Mm -hmm. that that's like just this very easy way in for jim henson and crew to to go into this larger world yeah yeah i think that was definitely a foothold for me too Mm -hmm. psychologically because i was an older sibling and my younger brother was sort of far enough away from me that it was very much um, I actually had like a very sort of caretaking, like protective relationship um, with him, but I did have the like, um, I don't know. And this sort of has followed me beyond the time when we were watching this movie, but I, but I always had this desire to sort of protect and take care of him in ways that were impossible and my mm-hmm. own sort of foibles and personality um, and vices got in the way of that for many, many mm-hmm. years. And so there's been this sort of ongoing um, parallel between our lives and the movie that I've thought back on a lot over the years. And there's also like, when I rewatched it, I was really struck by the sort of erotic undertones of it, mm. or maybe they're not even undertones, maybe they're overtones. Well, and I, I think, think that that's, there's just like this and, and, you know, there are sort of, familiar tensions in some way like there's like this older you know Mm -hmm. masculine identified like powerful figure who is like exerting power and alluring and kind of scary to this younger beautiful female character but it's also defamiliarized in a lot of ways because he's the bad guy they never have sex nothing ever really Mm -hmm. happens there and also they're in this sort of battle of the wits that she triumphs over in the end um and in some ways I think that model was really helpful I was not planning on talking about this but in my 30s I got into this like super intense really kind of addictive like painful relationship Mm -hmm. um and at the very end of it I was like sort of struggling to get out of it and kind of trapped inside the narrative of the relationship and a good friend of mine this is embarrassing but a good friend of mine um I had told her about my obsession with this movie and I had recited to her the final lines of the movie when they're in that scene where the staircases are all floating and she's sort of solved the labyrinth and uh Jareth is like wildly sort of gaslighting and Mm -hmm. like Hail Mary trying to manipulate her out of having sort of beaten him. Um, And she gives this little speech that's, um, let me see if I can remember it. Um, Through dangers untold and hardships unknown, 
I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the goblin city to take back the child that you have stolen for my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom is great. You have no power over for me. Um, and wow. it's like, you have no power over me, power over me. Um, which to me, it, I was like, Oh, there is an illusory nature to power structures within relationships. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you could find a way to break out of the sort of dominant, perception and the person who's framing the story of the relationship you can find agency and free yourself um and in some ways i think that that's sort of the message of the movie and also that you need help like you need community you need kinship you need fellows you need to take responsibility for other people in order to sort of access that agency so um it has come in handy for me many times over the years I'm one super impressed that you were able to <laughs> get that whole thing. It's, it is deeply, it's deeply, deeply in there. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it, no, but because uh-huh. I don't think I've said it out loud since like 2013 or whatever that was. But Give me the child. Sarah, beware. I have been generous up until now, but I can be cruel. Generous? What have you done that's generous? Everything. Everything that you wanted, I have done. You asked that the child be taken. I took him. You cowered before me. I was frightening. I have reordered time. I have turned the world upside down. And I have done it all for you. I am exhausted from living up to your expectations. Isn't that generous? Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City. For my will is as strong as yours, and my strength. But in that moment, as she's trying to remember that last line, uh, Jareth, he's doing the sort of manipulation. And I think this is the the, the power uh, that you're talking about here, the power dynamic that's at play and this level of manipulation on Jareth's part where he's saying to her, like, I can give you everything that you want. Right. But he's what he says is. Uh, just fear me, love me, and do as I say, and I will be your slave. And it really, like, there's something, like, interesting in that in terms of, like, both what you were saying earlier about this character being gender non-conforming and queering of a certain type of, like, evilness that that we were accustomed to seeing Mm -hmm. in sort of a Mm male-presenting dominant form, and him not attempting to use violence uh, in any way. He's not really attempting to use violence, right? Like, he's trying to manipulate and brainwash her in this way and say, like, look, you okay. can have everything you want if you are willing to capitulate to me in these very specific ways that have to do with playing with both affection and fear, and mm-hmm. I find that fascinating that he's... Yeah, that, that, I mean, it's really sort of like he's the... He's like patriarchy embodied. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, as long as you come into my story and you play the role and wear this dress and go to the masquerade ball and sort of 
come keep me company in my kingdom in which you are subjugated. Like you don't have to suffer and you can have whatever you want as long as it corresponds to sort of my story. And I get to, if I write the script, then you get to play this empowered role, right? Like that's the lie is like, if you embody femininity, if you, um, you know, follow compulsory heterosexual scripts, mm-hmm. then you have all this power, right? Like beauty is power. Sexuality is power. Like, um, um, yielding to sort of, uh, dominant power structures will enable you to triumph within them. Right. Like that's, that's right. the story, which of course is, you know, not true. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Like it's the lie. That's exactly what you're saying. Because what he does in that moment is position himself as subservient. Is if she, uh, you know, d- decides to come along with the program, right? Like mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. fear me, love mm-hmm. me, I will be your slave, right? Like he yeah. is. He's positioning himself as if that could be possible within the yeah. context of a relationship in which she feared I mean, him. Honestly, I have never considered this before and now it seems completely obvious but um you know my first book was about how I worked as mm-hmm. a professional dominatrix yeah. for a bunch of years in my 20s and it feels like a very similar construct mm-hmm. right where it was like uh my clients were these like very powerful men who were paying me a 21 year old drug addict mm-hmm. to enact these scenes in which they were my slave but like hilarious yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. like as if yeah. Um, you know, like the power that I was sort of exerting in those sits, like they would literally come in with scripts and right. be like, here you go, powerful goddess mistress, yeah. like please yeah. um, enact this powerful position in total accordance with the script that I have written ahead of time for you. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, it is a dynamic that I have encountered um, in a lot of different forms over yeah. the course of my life. So um, it feels validating in a way because right. sometimes I'm like, it was just the movie we had when I was a kid. And so I watched it a lot. So it's in there, but actually I do think it's coded with things that I, I suspect that Jim Henson and George Lucas, like we're not actually thinking about, <laughs> they were just embedded within their own consciousness. Yeah. Right. No, probably. I don't, I don't know how much uh, radical feminist thought they were. <laughs> like, sort of, like, in case. So this is another thing you sort of, you were talking about sort of uh, earlier, the, the visual script that it gives. And I was think, thinking about that with Jim Henson's like au revoir, really. And this, mm-hmm. this stands out to me. <laughs> um, this is not the Muppets. This is not Sesame street. And I'm, I, mm-hmm. I feel like, and, and this comes to something that happens sort of at the end there where, um, you know, Sarah is played by Jennifer Connelly is sort of saying like, oh yes, I'm growing up, but I recognize that like my old friends have their place. Like I, I should still mm-hmm. embrace them. And it's this Henson sort of thing where it's like, no, there's something that we should, we should all embrace the child like in within a, us, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But none of these figures feel like they're meant for children or like weren't, weren't meant for me as a child, I would say. Like mm-hmm. I would have been, I, again, didn't see it as a child. I would have been completely frightened by all of these, yeah, these figures. I, I had that same impression when I rewatched it recently. I think it was last year um, where it felt sort of 
It just felt artificial. Like the ending felt like him being like, no, 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 this is a children's <laughs> movie. <laughs> I promise. But, but actually there are so many more powerful images that contradicted earlier on. Mm. Like one of the images from the movie that I think about a lot is, um, is when she is, she sort of um, eats the poison peach and goes into the sort of reverie. Mm-hmm. And when she comes out of the reverie, she is um, in this like giant dump, basically. Yeah. And this like, I don't know, this this dump figure um, <laughs> comes like covered in trash and grotesque in the way of like all of the, the puppets in this movie. Um, and she leads her into this like perfect creepy diorama of her own bedroom. And she's mm-hmm. like, here, it's your dolls and your makeup and your pretty things. And don't worry about this trash waste pile of toys out here yeah. in this like, and it felt very much like, um, like this kind of metaphor for like, no, 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 no. Just like hide in your childhood and your middle-class mm-hmm. white femininity and girlhood. And just don't worry about the trash pile that's festering outside the door, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and this like very real urgent set of problems that only you can solve. Don't worry about mm-hmm. it. Just go play with your dolls. It's not, it's a very scary message. <laughs> it's actually not like seeking refuge in uh, the innocence of childhood, yeah. right? Like she's actually beset with some very real concerns and confronted with some very uh, scary, grotesque, like physically dangerous adult um, confrontations. No, stop that. Is that any way to treat someone who's trying to help you? Don't you want me to help you down? Ludo, down. Ludo? Is that your name? Ludo. You seem like such a nice beast. Well, I certainly hope you are what you seem to be. I briefly want to to talk about my favorite character, I think, is Hoggle. Um, and I think Hoggle for me just he, he speaks to me and that like he really is just like well there's a few levels to him he's lonely right and here comes someone new that he could like be friends with who needs him because she mm-hmm. she does need him right like she mm-hmm. needs him on some level to help her navigate the labyrinth but is also resistant because he himself is subject to the whims of Jareth the Goblin King and like we can see that that play out several times over Mm -hmm. but I think the one the moment that uh Hoggle won me over is in Hoggle is just like look I'm a coward (laughs) like like, it's after uh you know uh confronting Jareth and being and lying to Jareth being like oh I was gonna show her back to the beginning of the labyrinth and then Mm being then having to go with Sarah and be like Look, I was just lying to him. Look, I'm a coward. Like, I know how powerful mm-hmm. he is. And just that admission, the self-awareness, and the, the just, like, and just sort of, like, it, it's it's a little depressing, but it's very relatable to me. And just being like, look, I've lied in my life to people that I care about and to people that I'm afraid mm-hmm. of because, like, I'm so, I'm so invested in the consequences for everyone and myself that I just, like, can't bring myself to the truth, you know? Like, I know, and that, and I it's know. like, Hoggle's just trying to, like, be loved but also survive his conditions, and it's like... Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. I find him such a sympathetic 
character also. And in some ways it's like every, there, you know, I don't know, maybe it's also about live. I mean, it's a, it's sort of a, um, definitely an illustration of like life under despotism or dictatorship, (laughs) like a political structure where everyone has to be complicit or, you know, pay enormous personal costs. Right. But also like, just in hearing you talk about him, it's like every single character in the movie is so lonely. Sarah's Mm -hmm. lonely. Hoggle's Mm -hmm. lonely. That little, that little Fox character is lonely. Uh, Bluto is yeah. incredibly lonely, you know, it's like, so he has the rocks for friends, right. like powerful, but right. sad. And Jareth is also like, he has all the power. He's at the top of the hierarchy in the movie. And another image that I think about a lot when I think about this is sort of his most famous song in it when mm. he's, um, you remind me of the babe, the babe mm. with the power, but babe, um, when he's sort of dancing around his castle with all his disgusting yeah. little disciples. Um, and he's just like, his whole face is sort of defined by this incurable malaise where it's mm. like, maybe if I entrap this teenager, I won't be so lonely. but like yeah. nothing can cure his loneliness. Cause he's a, he's a narcissist with and- like borderline personality <laughs> disorder, but, uh, but it's a very lonely movie. Right. right? Like everyone in it starts off very lonely. Everyone's lonely. I- are all the goblins children that he has captured? That is the question. That is a question I do not know. I mean, that is a bleak landscape. Right? <laughs> because I thought about that. I was just, I was thinking. Was I mean, like, they're all very small and gross and and this is stupid. Where, like, <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking in the con- the contributing to his loneliness is basically that he only has his company the discarded children of, like, I mean, turn into goblins. Have we discovered that it's actually a horror movie? <laughs> it, it's kind of a horror movie. I mean, at least I, I would say it would have been a horror movie for me if my parents had ever come across it and sat me down in front of it yeah. as a child. I would have been completely I know, maybe horrified. that's why we were so enraptured by it for our whole childhood. <laughs> yeah. because it was, we should not have been watching it. <laughs> it's like a portal into much too adult themes for like, I mean, because I was, I guess, like, eight or nine when we started mm-hmm. watching it, which means my brother was like five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which it's is pretty really young <laughs> for the goblins and yeah. the bog of eternal stench. I think Jim Henson didn't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> you wanted no. Melissa, what's one lasting image that sticks with you from Labyrinth? I would say um, there's this sort of iconic uh, scene in the movie early on where Jareth the Goblin King, played by David Bowie, when he, when he first appears in her bedroom, mm. and he has this glass sphere that he's sort of juggling, and he's doing this sleight of hand that... I don't know if they use special effects or if he actually learned how to do it. I had, I dated someone briefly who could actually do it. So they might have taught him. Um, And he's sort of juggling this, this like crystal ball basically that turns into this owl. Um, 
And it's just seared into my memory. Mm. I think because I, I, it was one of the earliest experiences I had where I saw a character in a film that I was both attracted to. And Mm. I was sort of confused. I was like, do I want to be Mm. with them or do I want to be them? Mm. And it was that kind of blurring, you know, because he's so beautiful and like very feminine and also extremely powerful and seductive Mm. and frightening at the same time. And I was just hypnotized. Nusa, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Thanks for listening to Open Form podcast from LitHub Radio, produced by Justin Alvarez and hosted by me, Michael Denzel Smith. Feel free to like, comment, and subscribe to Open Forum wherever you get your podcast, and or sign up for the LitHub newsletter to stay up to date on our latest episode. Next week, Hitchcock.